Welcome to the Archways Podcast. Archways is recorded on the campus of Johnson C. Smith University and intended to support the goals of the Center for American Cultural and Race, which is housed on the campus of our partner institution, Guangdong Bayun University in Guangzhou, China. The Center and this podcast are designed to help our Chinese colleagues and friends understand and experience American culture through the lens of race. Here now are your hosts from Johnson C. Smith, Dr. Brian Jones, and Dr. Matthew DeForest. So today we are with Dr. Cheryl Butler Brayboy, Associate Professor of English here at Johnson C. Smith University. Uh, she has quite a varied background. Uh, she is not only a literary scholar and expert, uh, but she has done documentaries. She has done news. Uh, she has been the anchor on three or four stations at this point. Um, anchor on two and a reporter on maybe five. Okay. Um, so she, she has a, a broad-based background, and today we wanted to bring her in so she could talk to us about a documentary she's currently working on, uh, one that involves her own ancestors, and, well, I'll let her decide whether it's a unique uh, situation or not, the ancestors who were both slaves and slave owners in the past. So, Cheryl, welcome to the Archways Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. Uh, you want me to tell how this whole thing started? Yeah. Why don't Why don't you give us the brief overview at the beginning? Right. So, as you mentioned, I'm a literature scholar, and I've always been interested in 19th century slave narratives. Um, I'm particularly interested in the slave narrative written by Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, and I've taught that text a number of times. I was interested in her background because she writes about her experience as a slave in North Carolina, where Johnson C. Smith University is situated, and she writes about being a young child of mixed race living in eastern North Carolina and not knowing that she was legally a slave, and she discovered it upon the death of both of her parents and the death of her legal slave mistress. And she was suddenly cast into the life of slavery uh, at a very young age. And she suffered several horrors of slavery, um, one of which is unique to the female experience. So she was haunted and sort of hunted down by her slave master for years and years and years and um, ultimately hid out in her grandmother's attic and found her escape up north after several years. She also had children with a white man who became a congressman um, who lived down the street, and they had children together. Um, It was part of her plan to find her escape from slavery. So I was always fascinated with Harriet Jacobs' story, and last summer I was speaking with a cousin of mine about our own family history, and he mentioned that our story is very similar to Harry Jacobs' story. So that piqued my interest. The situation with my family is, uh, according to family folklore and also according to the will of a man named John Sutton, um, my family is originally, well, okay, originally is a tough word when it comes to slavery. But John Sutton was a slave owner born in 1770 in Pitt County, North Carolina. He was a slave owner, and one of his slaves, Lucy, apparently, based upon uh, the documents, based upon his will, was the love of his life. So she is a slave 
She was of mixed race. Um, he was a slave owner. He never married a white woman who would have been considered a respectable mate at the time. Um, but following the trajectory outlined in his will, apparently he and Lucy moved from eastern North Carolina near Harriet Jacobs, where she was born and raised. And then they moved to Georgia, apparently in search of a jurisdiction that was relatively kind to slave masters who had relationships with their slaves. They didn't find that in Georgia. So they moved to Florida, to Duval County, Florida, on the Jacksonville area. And he set up a plantation there. And according to what he he wrote in his very extensive will, they had eight children together. Um, Some of those children, Easter, Maria, Joel, Mahalia, Sarah, John, Benjamin, and David. And Easter uh, had six children of her own on the plantation in Duval County, Florida. Um, And, you know, we don't have the documents to say what their lifestyle was like, but if you look at the history and you look at other slave narratives, and for those of you listening, a slave narrative is a book written usually in the 1700s or 1800s, written by a slave after he or she um, uh, won his or her freedom, and it told the story of slave life in America, in the South, uh, described long you know, work days, described um, being beaten by a slave master, very harsh conditions, families torn apart, um, a mother being sold to one plantation while a father lived on another plantation, and the children perhaps being sold to another plantation. Um, so these slave narratives were valued possessions used in the abolitionist movement, which was a movement designed um, to work toward the emancipation of slaves. And so we don't have all of the details about John and Lucy's life, but we can surmise what the life might have been like for the children of Lucy and John. Again, they were mixed race, probably a term we use or that was used during slavery was quadroons. And so that meant they were a quarter black or African and three quarters white or European. They probably lived a life of relative privilege in Florida where the children, Easter, Mahalia, Joel, Benjamin, David, etc., probably learned to read and write. Um, They probably did not work in the fields as the other African slaves did, you know. Why why is that? um, Why would they not have worked in in the fields per se? Right, so the children of slave masters, the slave children, the enslaved children of slave masters who were mixed race had privileges. They were considered mulatto. Um, Often slave masters, even slave masters who had a white family, a a white wife with, with white children, and also had children with a slave woman, which was more of the standard, um, those children usually became house slaves. And that meant that they, you know, they were not relegated to the harsh conditions of the field, but they would be servants in the house. So that their, their elevated status, so to speak, is directly connected to their whiteness. If yes, you will. right. So skin the, color, skin tone is, is important here. Right. In this arrangement. It's very important. So the closer you are to white, um, the greater your racial mixture 
or hybridity, the more status you earned in the society. So that was identified by skin color, by hair texture, by facial features, um, things like that. It was illegal for slave masters and their slaves to have sexual relations, um, to get married. The miscegenation laws forbade that kind of union, but it was still common. Miscegenation is a term that, that even some, many Americans don't, don't understand. He, understand or hear. Can you tell us miscegenation uh, as a term? Right. That so means? miscegenation refers to uh, racial mixing. It was forbidden for, for example, a white man and a black woman or a Native American woman to have sexual relations, and it was illegal for them to get married. And so for John and Lucy, who apparently did love each other. I mean, she was a slave, a mixed race slave, a mulatto slave. Um, he was a white man of British heritage. His ancestry dates back to the 1600s in England. Um, it was it was illegal for them to leave, to get married, and so they did not get married, but they did live in the same home with their children and grandchildren. And so Lucy and the kids and the grandkids would have experienced privilege. Um, they wouldn't have probably, they probably were not beaten. They probably did not have to work 15 hours outside in the fields. Um, but at the same time, they were not free and they were not white. Uh, so it was a very tricky situation they were attempting to negotiate because it was against the law for them to have this this setup, right? And And just to back up to one point for our Chinese audience that might not have been initially clear, one of the signs of privilege is their literacy. Yes. So that it, it was illegal um, for slaves to be taught to read and write uh, because that was a means of controlling that population. If they cannot read and write, they cannot read newspapers, they cannot forge documents, they cannot read the documents that they're moving around with because in order to leave the plantations and go somewhere, you had to have a pass, a written pass. Yes, yes. So um, literacy was a huge deal. Um, as you mentioned, if someone, if a, if a slave could learn to read and write, he or she could write the, their own pass to freedom. Um, they could begin to read about the injustice of slavery. They could read the Bible, which might render slavery immoral. And so literacy, the ability to read and write, was rendered illegal for slaves for those reasons. In the slave narratives, most slaves identify the moment when they learned to read and write, against, although it was against the law. So Frederick Douglass writes about um, having a kind slave mistress, right, the wife of the slave owner, um, help, she helped him learn to read and write. She taught him the ABCs and um, taught him letters and numbers. Um, he also negotiated with the young white boys in town and would barter with them and give them, you know, I'll do this for you if you give me your spelling book, right? He understood and some slaves understood the value of literacy. So the fact that John and Lucy's children could learn to read and write by virtue of their connection to their father um, and also their slave master, um, that, was a, that was a big deal because it meant they could start to understand why perhaps slavery was wrong. 
and this is a very uh, personal story for you. And that's something that I want to make sure that we talk in detail about because we sat uh, a while back with uh, Dr. Packer and Dr. Aratus, and the four of us talked about the origins of American slavery and to some degree about the construction of race as a separating characteristic uh, in, a, in British colonial society and then ultimately American society. But the personal aspect of this, I think, is something that our, our Chinese audience might want to hear mm. because it's, it's so s- central to the experience of African-Americans in this country. And my suspicion is that um, your, your depth of understanding of it is going to be enlightening for folks who may not quite understand how race mm. works in the United States. Okay. So John Sutton, the slave master I've been talking about, is my great, 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 great grandfather. And Lucy, his slave and lifelong partner, is my great, 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 great grandmother. Um, I did not know the history growing up, but I did attend our family reunion every year called the Crim Sutton Sumner Family Reunion. So Sutton was a part of the family um, our family name. And I knew that, but I didn't know why. Um, I occasionally heard my mother and her sister talking about their grandmother, um, who would have been the great granddaughter of John Sutton. And they, you know, I've seen pictures of her and they've talked about her. Um, I knew my mom was of mixed race on both sides of her family, but I didn't really understand the depths of that. And I think um, as my cousin, who is an estate's attorney in California, what happened is he went to a convention, an estate's attorney's convention in Florida. And um, he had heard the stories of our family. Our great aunt was 100 years old. Um, The family was celebrating her birthday and I guess reminiscing about the family history. And my Aunt Viola was telling the story of John and Lucy Sutton and Sarah Sutton Sumner, who's my three times great-grandmother. And he it piqued his interest as an estate's attorney because he, he understood there was a will somewhere. And he discovered that that will was in Duval County, Florida, near Jacksonville, well, Jacksonville, Florida. And so when he went to this conference for estate's attorneys, he also took a, made a stop at the Duval County Courthouse to see if he could find these records, and he did. Um, he found the original will, and um, he started reading it. As an attorney, he understood the ramifications. He understood um, the story behind the story. And um, as he read it, he realized that, wow, this, this wealthy white slave owner is our is factually our great 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 grandfather and he it seems as though he was a benevolent slave master you hear in america you hear all of these vicious stories about slave masters who beat raped um, punished their slaves without conscience and this was a case in our own family where there, there apparently was a slave master who was our relative who was doing everything in his power to protect his black and mixed race family. Um, so 
my cousin did this research. He was at this convention and one of the attorneys there had a practice in Duval County and said, hey, I could probably get the will for you. And um, he said, really? And the attorney said, yes, because they're trying to, to make all of these old records digital and they're getting rid of the paper copies. And so that attorney did get a copy of this will from 1846. I went down last summer, um, thanks to your support, um, and I retrieved the will from this attorney and I saw it for the first time, which is really, you know, it was really emotional for me to realize that I had in my hands um, our freedom papers, right? The freedom papers for my family and for the audience, um, freedom papers were essential to a slave's actual freedom. Um, there were some slaves up north uh, through gradual emancipation who were freed before the Emancipation Proclamation. There were some slaves down south who were freed through private manumission, usually the children and grandchildren of the slave master. Um, so this was our situation. It was private manumission. Uh, as I was reading it, I just could not believe that I was reading the names that I had heard my mom and my aunt Lola say, um, and that these were actually his children that he was freeing, and these were relatives that I knew I had, um, based upon our family trees, that at the family reunion we did, even though I was bored by it, they did go through the family tree, tracing it back to Lucy and John. And so I, I was beside myself because I had read so many slave narratives about emancipation papers, freedom papers. I never in my lifetime thought that I would see and hold and have in my possession the freedom papers of my family. Um, I never thought that I would have proof that we were related to the slave master and the slave woman. So it was really an incredible moment for me and for my daughter who was there as well and my husband. Um, so we're working on a documentary about it. And so we shot that experience. And I went to California where my mother's family lives and interviewed the, my cousin, the attorney, Terry, and my aunt Lola and uncle Ben, my mother's um, siblings. And my uncle Ben was like, of course, yeah, we've known this our whole lives. Like, why are you guys making a big deal of this? You know, and they're they are very light-skinned black people, my mom's family. Like my grandmother, my friends growing up, my white friends growing up would see my grandmother at her house and they would say, why is that white woman in your house? <laughs> like, they didn't get it, but she did look, she did look white, right? And, um, and my, um, you know, my, my uncle has blue eyes and, and very fair skin and, and straight hair. And the same is true for, you know, the grandfather and the great greats. Um, and my mother, who she passed away five years ago, but when she was in the hospital, they had to do a DNA test and they told her, well, you're 30% African and 70% uh, mostly European and some Native American, right? So she too had heard the folklore, but didn't really have the evidence. And so slowly, slowly but surely, we started piecing it together. And so this, this is actually an interesting um, segue because the discussions of, of race in the United States, as, as we've talked about several times and, and uh, Dr. DeForest and I are trying to make as clear as possible, are almost entirely constructed around issues of skin color. Um, we don't 
engage often in discussions about ethnicity in a traditional sense. And by that, I mean Americans are of Irish descent and African descent and Asian descent and so on and so forth. But that's not always what separates race. We don't consider the Irish another race the same way, by and large, most Americans, I think, don't consider Jews another race. Um, but the difference between one's skin tone it makes the big difference. So you, you've mentioned this already, and I want to make sure we, we're sort of clear about the personal experience of, of whiteness and blackness and shades along the way and Native American blood and, and ancestry, which connects to Europe and Africa. That, that kind of thing, I think, is extraordinarily important to understand American concepts of race. And I just wondered if you could talk more about this notion of um, sort of whiteness and blackness um, and the experience that you would have and others would have um, in the United States with this question. And I suppose uh, issues about passing will come up and what that means and how that translates. But, you know, it's sort of it's it's central because, as you mentioned, there are some folks who may walk down the street. And if you look at them initially, you may think of that person is white and they say, oh, oh, no, wait. No, they're in fact black, and this becomes a, a whole big amalgam in this huge, <laughs> confused color palette that we have here. Yeah, race is um, complex and problematic, and yes, a constructed phenomenon rooted in skin color primarily, hair texture as well, facial features, eye color, all of those things. Um, so in, during slavery, it became pretty complicated because y- you had you know, pure Africans who were clearly black and you had, you know, quote unquote, pure Europeans who were white, but very quickly the two races started mixing. And so then you had variations of blackness. Um, So you had some black slaves who were very, very dark with very kinky hair, with broader features. Um, And then they might have children if you know, if there were, if there was a sexual relationship with a slave master, they might have children who were lighter skinned, considered mulatto, but um, still brown, um, that might have slightly curlier hair. Um, in the African American community, hair texture is like this big thing um, because you can start to see, well, how mixed are you? and their status associated with being more mixed, with having more white blood or um, Native American blood. There's a joke that you walk into a room and you say, well, who's Native American? Is anyone Cherokee? And everyone, especially if they're black, they raise their hands because um, they wanted to be able to claim something to say that they weren't pure African, that there was stigma associated with being pure African. And that stigma remains today to some extent. in the black community. So in the, in the United States, there was, of course, the one drop rule. So if you had one drop of African blood, no matter how light-skinned you were, you were still considered to be black. If you look at the evolution of the census, the definition of blackness um, changed over the years. So um, you might have you know, one decade where it's the one drop rule doesn't matter how light you are, how straight your hair is. If you have one drop, if it's traceable through your mother's ancestry, that you have a slave ancestor or an African ancestor, no matter how light you are, you are black. And Gene Toomer, who was a writer during the Harlem Renaissance, writes about that experience because you might look at him and think he's a white man, but you could trace his ancestry. 
on his mother's side to a, an African ancestor. So he lived his life in segregated schools, neighborhoods, um, etc. as a black man. Um, and just a quick note, the Harlem Renaissance is in the 1920s and 30s in the United States. It is a literary and artistic movement born in Harlem, New York, a part of New York City, where there was a, a great flourishing and flowering of African-American art and art movements. Yes, and during that period in the 1920s and 1930s, there was a significant number of, of light-skinned African-Americans who passed as white. Right, and that term "past" is is one that I wanted to make sure you explain, and I'll, I'll ask you to stretch out of your comfort zone. Yeah, because this this becomes a, I, from my perspective at least, a pop culture phenomenon as well in the modern period, hmm. where we can talk about major African American artists and the extent to which they look, if you will, black. Mm. Okay, give me some examples. I'm thinking of Beyonce mostly. Okay, who who from my perspective continues to get lighter skin. Oh, really? On a regular basis. Now it's probably not true. Huh? But Michael Jackson's another example. Yeah. So these and and the extent to which we see that, and maybe it was true in the '70s and '80s and '90s, maybe less true now. Yeah, there's there's this pressure. I think. I mean, you know, I was raised in a household where I we embraced our African identity. So my friend said, "What are you?" It was always like, "I'm African American. I'm black," and I was always proud to be that. And I never went through the, you know, a mix with this and that because I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to associate shame with being black. But there is, there is that thing in among, our society. Among some. Yes. Yes. And it's it's pretty significant. Um, people not really wanting to, again, to be pure African, not wanting to be that black. And so, yeah, if you can get a nose job or, you know, <laughs> um, straighten your hair or whatever, um, to look more mixed, then people associate status with that. Um, when, you, when you talked about passing, it, it made me think about um, when John and Lucy... So when John was sick... In the 1840s, um, John Sutton, my fourth great grandfather, when he he was sick and he was on his deathbed, and they knew he was about to die, he did write a will, and in that um, will, as I mentioned, he said he named his children and grandchildren and Lucy, and saying that he wanted them to be set free, and he was very specific about it. He said that he wanted them to be taken to the free states, Illinois, Indiana, or Ohio. Um, he wanted them to be set up by, you know, by a benefactor, by someone he identified that would take them up north and make sure they had a house and all of that. There was a will contest um, upon his death. So he died in 1846. In 1847, there was a will contest, and we have all those documents as well. Judge Crabtree hand-wrote all of his notes and transcribed the proceedings. What, what does that mean, a will contest? Okay, so, and I really didn't know, but because my cousin is an state's attorney and this is what he does for a living, he understood what, what was going on. Um, this was common too. When slaves were set free through private manumission by slave masters, their family members often wanted to inherit the slaves because they were valuable property. Like Dred Scott. Yeah, yeah. Um, very similar. And so in this case, they went to court. We have the records of Lucy testifying. 
Um, but his brother, John Sutton's brother. Lucy testified? Isn't that? Well, she did appear in court. She appeared in court. And tell us why I re- well because responded yeah to normally shock. a person of color would, it legally cannot testify in court, but they did take her testimony for whatever reason. This Judge Crabtree seemed to be exceptionally progressive for the 1800s <laughs> because what he did is he he listened to both sides and Lucy had did have representation by Judge uh, by Attorney Yale. Um, and she did have representation, and his John Sutton's brother claimed that he had rightful ownership to the slaves, and his brother was not in sound mind because he was sick. And uh, there was a pretty brutal court battle over these slaves, Lucy and the eight children and the six grandchildren. Ultimately, Lucy won, and um, John's friend... Um, took the family, they took, so it was all, you know, the whole family, they took the livestock from the plantation, cows, pigs, um, whatever possessions they could muster, and they boarded a boat, and they, um, they went from Florida to Louisiana and up through to Southern Illinois, to Polk County, Illinois, which is where my my family's from. Both of my parents are from there. My father's history is actually very similar. But um, Southern Illinois, which uh, it's on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky, so it's really basically in the south, but you're right over the border in the north. That's the area where Lincoln is from, I think. Yeah, he's from Salem, which is um, a little bit further north, further but north, not too okay. far. Yeah, but he has roots in Kentucky, as does um, his wife. Oh, interesting. Wasn't Mary Todd Lincoln from Kentucky? She was a uh, was it Kentucky or Missouri? They're all right there. It's a border yeah. state. Yeah, and she came from a slaveholding family in Kentucky, which is why it was so. Um, you know, Lincoln sort of becomes this enigmatic figure for a variety of huh. reasons. But, I'll have to look more into that. But the point, but yeah, but yeah. So um, that you know, just the land, right, land of family. Lincoln, so to speak. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but what was interesting is they did not pass. Um, so looking at the census records, they could have. My, I did retrieve their pictures. Well, at least the picture of Sarah, one of the daughters of John. And Lucy, so Sarah is my great 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 grandmother, Sarah Sutton Sumner, and her son George. Um, my aunt had their pictures, which we didn't know that the pictures existed. And um, the person who I guess made copies of the pictures said they were found in a really um, ornate frame in southern Illinois. And um, I don't know who this person was, but some kind of specialist said that it was very uncommon, very rare for a family of color to have. Um, a frame of that. Framed image. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but they didn't pass. They were listed as mulatto on the census records of, I think, 1850 and 1880. They were always listed as, as mulatto and not white. They could have passed. Can you, can you explain that term more? I don't know if you know the, I don't, I don't know the, the origins of that term. Mulatto? Yeah. But I wondered if it might be possible to lay it out just a little bit more so folks can understand. Because it's a term that we use in the academy a lot in university. We do. And some people have, ish, you know, take issue with the term. For my, I mean, it's, I think it's a Spanish word, mulato, mulata. Okay. Um, and signifies the mule, right? A mixed breed okay. animal. And so that's why people in some cases, take issue with the use of the word, but it was used during slavery. It was at, at certain, During certain periods, it was considered a separate race. People were identified as mulatto. Um, 
as opposed to African American, as opposed to black, to I black, should say. Right. Black African American was uh, a term uh, another, of the eighties. <laughs> another development that, yes. that eventually we will get to in the course of the podcast to talk about the various iterations of the term used to describe persons of color in the right. United States. And we've gone, we went through several versions, most of which are considered um, derogatory, mm-hmm. negative in connotation to land at something. So we'll deal with that uh, ultimately in a later podcast. So Matt, make a note. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to remember that. But it's, we want to do more research this summer because it seems as though this sort of this pocket in Southern Illinois on the border of Missouri, Kentucky, and Tennessee was a place where blacks found freedom, you know, through the Underground Railroad. And they, they found... Um, safety and some degree of comfort. They set, my family set up a, a farm there and farmed for a couple of generations before they started going to college um, around the turn of the century, Southern Illinois University. But um, yeah, I, I want to know more about the, the free class of, of mixed race people who were living. There was a number of them um, that, that re- lived and resided there. I mean, that resided there. One thing I'd, I'd like to, for our Chinese audience, stress is just how tightly tied up into American history this is, um, because all this discussion of the contested will reminds me of, I believe, something we talked about in the last podcast of how George Washington, when he was writing his will with the intention of freeing his slaves, had to jump through a variety of legal loopholes to get that done. And and this is George Washington, the founder of the country, first president of the United States, president of the Continental Congress, the, the man who led the American Revolution. If he's tied up in the laws, that's how deeply this went. And we just went to Abraham Lincoln. And these are the two men who are regu- who are universally cited as number one and number two in terms of our greatest presidents. Um, so how deeply and how intimately tied up into the American story your family's history is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not always as clearly seen um, because the, the story of America is always seen and framed in the story of the, the immigrant experience. Um, but the, the lurking complication we always have is what do we do with the people whose immigration was not voluntary? Mm. Um, even even if, um, with my Irish ancestry, you can go back to people who the choice was, well, do we stay here and starve or do we go? Well, let's pack <laughs> our bags. That's still a materially different situation. Um, not that starving is a great choice to make. But, but it isn't someone slapping you in chains, throwing you on a ship, and taking you across the ocean. Um, so it, it is an intensely difficult part of the narrative for us to navigate. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the interesting things about your research, uh, that it is dealing with some of the real complexities and challenges um, that are not always immediately brought to the fore when America is is talking about the way it imagines itself. Mm. Yeah. There's always, I would say, a double meaning 
um, when it comes to these written documents. I mean, you can go back to the our founding documents um, to see that duality. But with wills, it was a major issue when it came to emancipation during slavery. Um, we see that in Harriet Jacobs' slave narrative. She didn't know she was a slave until you know, seven or eight years old, and it was because of a will. Um, her slave mistress left a will and bequeathed her to a niece, a six-year-old niece. Well, when you bequeath a slave to a niece who's six, that means her parents own you. And um, so she went from being a free girl, um, learning, going to church, visiting her grandmother's bakery, to being a slave because of a will. And I'm quite sure her kind mistress had no idea the horrors she was going to face as a slave. She thought, you know, this is what you do. You have property and then you leave it to your family members. Um, so there are several cases where the will is, is troubling. You have, you know, once you pass away, you have no control over how that will is interpreted. And because slaves were so valuable, that there are inevitably going to be family members who, who want to inherit the slaves. So that was, that was huge in our case. I mean, the, the will, the, the interpretation of the will in court made all the difference. My family could have remained in slavery, you know, another nearly 20 years. Um, but they found their freedom early, thanks to the will. Um, there was something else I was going to say when you were talking about, you know, Thomas Jefferson in the same situation yeah. um, with his mixed-race children. Some of them went on to pass as white some of them embraced their mixed identity and lived their lives as African, you know, what is, I guess it was black <laughs> um, then, but, you know, that also meant that they, because they were mixed and um, most of them went north, that they were able to live with privilege. I wanted to mention as well the, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 um, were... <laughs> were, were troubling for slaves who did find their freedom, who were able to navigate their way to freedom, um, as my ancestors did. Um, it meant, so my ancestors left in 1847, just because they made it to the North didn't mean they were safe, right. you know, because of the, the, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, they could have been easily captured and tossed back into slavery. Um, despite the papers they may have had. Despite the papers, um, they could have been. They were never truly safe. They did a good job of creating a, tr a paper trail. They took a copy of the will. They left a copy in Duval County. They brought another copy to Louisiana. They, there's another copy that we hope to get this summer housed in Polk County, Illinois. Um, so they, they understood the danger, and they wanted to be able to make the best case in court in case they were captured, that they were legally free. The fugitive slave laws that you mentioned are probably two of the most notorious, I suppose, um, most vilified mm. pieces of federal legislation mm. from the 19th century. Um, just as a, as a quick summary, they, the, the issues of, of slavery and slave ownership were um, existed at the state level from whether it was Georgia or Florida or mm. North Carolina. But issues of states uh, or slaves rather either escaping uh, slavery to the north or leaving slavery to the north meant that 
many Southerners insisted upon a federal law for the proper return of what they considered their own property. If a slave left um, without being freed, without papers, and ended up in New Jersey or Illinois, then it was the duty of the United States Marshals to collect and return that property to the proper owner. Not unlike, frankly, one would return a stolen car. It was the same basic idea, and it was this awful law because it was abused um, to return slaves to slavery, freedmen to slavery. And that by that I mean individuals in the North who may have had their own freedom for a variety of years for in whatever way, may have been born free, may have been yeah. manumitted, um, were sometimes gathered up and sent to slavery, even though indeed they were had never been slaves. It was a, just an awful law, and there are two of them, uh, two of which makes it even worse, one from the early constitutional period and another from the antebellum period when the United States is drifting towards civil war and the fugitive slave law that came about during the Compromise of 1850 mm. was enacted as a, as a gift to the southern states in order to stave off secession and civil war. Mm, which, of course, did not work. Fascinating. Yeah, and one of the most, has to be one of the most chilling statements in American jurisprudence history uh, is actually from Chief Justice Robert, or, I'm sorry, Roger B. Taney, uh, who was Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, who ruled in the Dred Scott decision that um, a black man had no rights that the white man was bound to respect. <laughs> and, and that and that's coming from the highest court in the land at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pleased to say that he he resigned at the moment of uh, of Lincoln's appearance. Um, but still, it is one of the rules that enforced um, these horrific laws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And slave masters went to great effort to retrieve their slaves who had escaped. So in the case of Harriet Jacobs, the slave from North Carolina, she traveled to Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., finally to, up to New York. He was still sending um, you know, messages to newspapers and ads and um, seeking this fugitive slave and describing, you know, they always just provide a description of the slave in hopes of having her return, offering a reward for the slave's capture and return. So the slaves and their abolitionist support system had to be very vigilant, right? With Harriet Jacobs, she had to establish these strong ties with, with, with white people, white women particularly up north, who protected her, who allowed her to hide in their homes. And, you know, they were in jeopardy as well. Right? For, for harboring a slave. So it was very tough. One of the things we didn't talk about in our other conversation about slavery, and it's one that we've hinted at a bit here today, is issues of slave life. And I just want to make sure that before we run out of time that we can talk about what life would have been like for a female slave um, of these circumstances, of Lucy's circumstances, mm-hmm. and and those who maybe were not so, um, uh, I wanted to use the term fortunate, but who were not in similar circumstances. How would have slave? How was slave life for women in mm. American slavery? Mm. Well, I can 
base my description on the writings of William Wells Brown, who wrote the first novel, Clotel, by um, an African-American person, um, by Frederick Douglass's accounts and his slave narratives, and by Harriet Jacobs primarily. Uh, for women, gosh, it was, it was tough. <laughs> it was tough for everybody. Tougher, um, tougher for women than men? I don't know if I could use the word tougher, but they, they faced uh, the possibility of rape, um, and beating. So while men, for sure, faced beatings, um, possible lynching, which is, you know, being hanged. Um, but for women, they, as Frederick Douglass describes, he describes a woman being whipped and whipped to the point where she had blood dripping from her shoulders and her legs and every limb on her body um, to near death for a minor incident, you know. Um, but what Harriet Jacobs describes of women being tormented and for years and years by slave masters being sexually abused, I mean, she doesn't describe it in detail because it would have been considered uh, profanity to write in that way in the 19th century, but she used great metaphor to describe her her torment, um, being hunted by her slave master. And then his wife, who was jealous. I mean, you know, William Wells Brown writes about that complexity as well. So you have a, a family, a slave owner and his wife, and then a slave master who's also having these sexual relationships with his slave women, um, in most cases without their consent. Um, so, you know, we would consider that rape. Maybe in some cases, as Harriet Jacobs says, she did have a consensual relationship with a, with a white man. So both things happened. But, um, but to be raped and to have children with a man you despise, um, then to be shunned by your own community because, you know, now you, you are associated with the slave master. His wife is feeling violated because he's cheating with these slaves and everybody knows it because the children look like the slave master. I mean, it was just a deplorable situation um, for these for these women. For Harriet Jacobs, it was um, it was so reprehensible that she, you know, after years and years of of um, Dr. Flint in the book, but Dr. Norcom in real life, I did get to go and see his plantation and his, um, his grave, Dr. Norcom, who haunted Dr. Uh, Harry Jacobs for years. Um, that was a sight to see as well, but that, um, that she hid out in her grandmother's attic for seven years to escape his advances, um, wow. before, wow. before she escaped. So, um, before we, before we finish up here, I just wanted to ask him one more question and that it relates to your own work and your own research. You mentioned earlier, um, a documentary film. Mm -hmm. Could you just talk briefly about the future of this research project? Um, so, and, and we, you mentioned several books already and I think one of our goals, uh, Matt and I have fresh goals is to make sure that the website is updated with this sort of information and notes so we can steer students and others in the direction of them works that you mentioned, but, but what's the future of this project for you? Yeah. Um, we want to go back to, well, I want to get to Pitt County. I didn't, I didn't uh, shoot anything. I haven't shot anything yet in Pitt County where 
their romance, we could call it, began. And to right, so we're taking a video with digital cameras. Um, we're interviewing um, experts who would be able to tell us what life was like in the area, give us a sense of, of slavery in Pitt County before they left and went to Georgia, um, hoping to find the records, the, the will and the papers that were filed in Georgia um, to find the location where they set up a plantation in Georgia and then to go back to Duval County um, and to, to, you know what we really want to do is to find the white ancestors, the yeah. white Suttons. Mm-hmm. And because um, in many cases, they don't, they don't know this history. You know, they, they don't know that they have, well, black <laughs> relatives mm-hmm. and that we share a history. Um, so that would be one of my goals. You know, we have a family reunion this summer. I'd love to go and get more, more of the history. Go to Polk County. Haven't been there, even though I spent every summer in Southern Illinois. Since my parents are from there, I know the area, but I d- I've never gone to the courthouse to find the the records to find to fill in the gaps of the story. So we're taking you know video camera, conducting interviews. Um, getting video of the sites and whatever documents we can find. And we hope to have at least an hour long um, documentary about the story of John and Lucy Sutton. Good. Well, that, uh, that sounds like a pretty good note to end on. Um, Dr. Forrest, do you have any last words or? Uh, just to let those of you know who will be listening to this at the appropriate time, uh, a number of the slave narratives that have been mentioned will be part of the hard copy library in our American Cultural Center at Guangdong Bayern University. Um, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass and several others. Um, there's an, an anthology that will be in the library there that contains a number of these narratives. Excellent. So with that, uh, we'll bid you farewell. Until the next time. The Archways Podcast is a production of Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, USA, in partnership with the Guangdong Bayun University in Guangzhou's People's Republic of China. Archways is made possible through generous funding from the United States Embassy in Beijing, China, and through the College of Arts and Letters at Johnson C. Smith University. Additional support has been provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. You can email us at jcsuartsletters at gmail.com.